Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Sociology. Uh, my name is Richard Osijo of the City University of New York, the host of this channel. And today we're going to be talking to Joan Maya Mazelis about her new book, Surviving Poverty, Creating Sustainable Ties Among the Poor. So welcome to the show, Joan. Thanks so much for having me, Richard. All right, great. So I was wondering if you could begin by uh, just saying a little bit about yourself, your your background, and how you became interested in this topic and decided to write a book about it. Sure. Um, well, so uh, I am an assistant professor of sociology at Rutgers University in Camden, um, and I live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I went to graduate school at UPenn in Philadelphia. So I've lived in Philadelphia for almost 20 years. Um, although I'm originally from New York, where, where you are. And for my doctoral work, I was in Philadelphia. So um, I was very interested in how in a big city, which now has the highest rate of poverty of any big city in the United States, uh, poor people make sense of their lives uh, and the struggles that they go through. I had worked on a project uh, with an advisor in graduate school where I had been coding some data with uh, of interviews with welfare recipients. And a lot of the welfare recipients said things like, well, you know, I'm not the typical welfare recipient. And I was really interested in that idea of what they thought the typical welfare recipient was and why that didn't describe them. And really what most of them were talking about was this image that welfare recipients were lazy and had, you know, 11 kids by 10 different fathers and uh, were trying to cheat the system didn't have any work experience. They had all of these stereotypes in mind about poor people and about welfare recipients. Um, but they knew it wasn't true for themselves. They knew their own biographies quite well, that they usually had one or two children, that they had extensive work experience, that they loathed being uh, welfare recipients, and they couldn't wait for the time when they could leave it behind. Um, so I thought it was really interesting that rather than question the accuracy of this rule, they just thought they were the exceptions to the rule. And I thought a lot about how that might affect their social ties with each other. What would the implications of that be? So I decided to do some research looking exactly at that. And I, I wanted to start with um, people who I thought would maybe reject some of that stigma about poverty very explicitly and see what it played out, uh, how it played out for their ties. And then a comparison group to find people who, um, who didn't really join together, who didn't reject that poverty stigma. So that drew me to this organization that's well known in Philadelphia, had been in the news quite a bit before I even started my research. So I'd heard of them called the Kensington Welfare Rights Union. And here was a group of poor people who were proclaiming their poverty. They were, they were saying, yes, we're poor, but they were saying it's not our fault. And I thought it would be really interesting to spend some time with them and see what their lives were like and how they thought about their poverty and the causes of poverty. So that's what started me on the path. Oh, great. Really interesting. We're going to come to some of the differences between the Kensington Welfare Rights, Rights Union members and the non-members in a little bit. But um, I was wondering if you can really start by talking about this really, really key concept in your book, and that's the just the power of individualism uh, in the United States broadly. Uh, but the poor people who you studied, they you show how they really have a strong sense of individualism and a really strong aversion to dependency, as you mentioned. Uh, but then again, these are the very people who would benefit from having a stronger social safety net. Um, and you found out this is, uh, this is held by the people who are both in the group, the Kensington Welfare Rights Union, and the people who are not members of it. I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about this, uh, this idea of individualism and uh, their aversion to dependency. 
Yeah, sure. Thanks so much for that question. Um, yeah, you know, I, it took me a while to sort of make sense of that in my data, to be honest. Um, I think it's such a, it's such a commonly held perception in the United States. And I think rather than trying to find some different unique explanation for it among the poor, I realized, um, really it's the same explanation that, that explains it among the middle class and among the wealthy. You know, in the United States, we really have a very strong personal responsibility ethic. And we tend to take credit for our successes and we blame ourselves for our failures. So when we see other people who we think have fallen short in some way, we tend to think they've made the wrong decisions. Um, and when we don't reach our goals, we tend to blame ourselves as well. Um, so I did find that almost everyone really did talk about how um, they should pull themselves up by their bootstraps, that they should work harder. Um, they lamented their past choices, uh, ways that they thought they could have made better decisions. And they really thought that the key to a better future and to getting out of poverty was going to be to pursue more education, um, to get more work experience, to try harder. And they really thought that the reason they hadn't been successful so far was that they simply really hadn't tried hard enough. Um, and I do think this individualist ethic is very long standing, long term in the United States, but I think it's gotten worse in the past 30 or 40 years. I think it's deepened um, in the sense that as our public safety net has eroded, and it has, um, not just in the past 20 years with welfare reform, but really starting um, sooner than that, starting in the 1970s and 1980s. I think it's been more incumbent upon people to rely on themselves to be able to get a leg up because there really isn't any other option. Um, so part of it is recognizing that that's the only choice, right? So you can't wait for uh, the government, for the state to step in and help because it's not going to. Uh, so I think some of it is just sort of a natural understanding that people have of what, um, what they're able to do and what they, what they have to do. Um, and then I think in some ways it is um, made worse by the stigma that I was talking about before, the stigma about poverty that we tend to blame, um, blame poor people and poor people tend to blame themselves for, for those uh, weaknesses or failures that they see in their own lives. Um, and I did absolutely find it among both groups. I, I hadn't uh, expected that really, to be honest. Um, but except for maybe uh, a couple of key activists in KWRU, most members talked about it in the same way, about how they needed to try harder and they needed to, uh, what we sociologists call, you know, invest in human capital. But they really thought that's what they needed to do to, to do better. All right. Interesting. And stemming from this topic um, that you found is the idea that the this sense of individualism that they have really breeds social isolation. And many of the people you studied, they, they avoid forming social ties that could be valuable for them, which is, I found a really, really fascinating finding. Thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was actually really fascinated by it too. I'm still really fascinated by it. And I think there are still ways that I'm trying to uh, make sense of it even now. Um, but I think on the one hand, if you have to rely on yourself and not the government, the state to step in and help, uh, that it would make sense that you'd have to rely more on a, a private safety net, right? Without that public safety net. And a private safety net would include social ties with other people. You would be relying on those other people. However, the very thing that tells people to rely on themselves also means they can't really rely on those other people, right? Um, and so the individualism is part of what leads them to avoid ties with others. Um, they want to prove to themselves and to the outside world that they can go it alone, that they can do it by themselves, that they can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Um, and of course, there's a lot of other things connected to that as well, right? So if um, you admit that you need help and you rely on other people, in some sense, you're admitting a kind of dependency or a weakness, which is a threat to self-esteem, all of that. But you're also opening yourself up to all kinds of risks. And so it's understandable that people would want to um, be careful 
of those things and try to avoid the risks that they think might um, might come from developing ties with other people. And so they avoid those ties except when they really can't. Uh, for some of them, they are able to make enough um, of the, their ties in their lives work so that they can rely perhaps on one relative or one friend, but they still in general subscribe to the idea of avoiding social ties. Um, and again, this was also true of both groups for the most part. Um, the fact that I later did find that KWRU members did develop social ties with each other is not because they had a different attitude about it at the beginning. Uh, it really is because it grew out of that later on. Um, but I'm sure we'll get to that later. <laughs> so to me, the the real heart of this book is belonging and not belonging to the KWRU. Um, then what are the different paths that people have been taking to this organization? And how do people, once they're in it, experience it? Okay. So I guess first, uh, part of it is um, related to what we were just talking about with the avoiding social ties. So one path that I think people take is that they've been avoiding ties, partly because of that individualism, partly because um, of a poverty stigma in general and trying to avoid other people who they see as poor um, because they don't want to associate themselves with those people. They feel like it might make them look bad. And as I was saying, to avoid all those sorts of risks, right? So avoiding the risk that someone else will ask something of you. Uh, if you develop social ties with people, then you are saying you need their help and they might need your help, right? And so being careful to safeguard your own resources means avoiding those ties so that you don't have to engage in reciprocity. Um, and of course, there are people who really want to avoid um, potential danger that they see that those uh, in their potential social networks might represent uh, to the extent that they live in uh, what they perceive to be violent or high crime neighborhoods. Sometimes they do, by the way, and sometimes they don't really live in those sorts of areas. Um, and, and also avoiding, um, what they see as gossip, which sounds kind of trivial, but, um, it can be, it can be a big thing, um, because it, it's so much about the threat to self identity and self esteem when people, um, speak poorly of, of others. Um, so, in terms of the paths that people find to the group, there are those who who fit all of those um, characteristics in terms of avoiding ties that those not in KWRU do as well. And the thing that leads them to KWRU's doors is that that one or two social ties they have been able to rely on so far are no longer able to provide any kind of help. So perhaps they have a falling out with um, their mother or an aunt or somebody that they've been staying with. Um, and so they don't have a place to live. Um, perhaps sometimes it's um, they're married and uh, they're in a situation of domestic violence and they need to leave. And with nobody else to turn to, people go to KWRU because they've heard this organization will help them. Even though the name Kensington Welfare Rights Union implies that it's really about helping people exercise their rights to get welfare, a lot of what KWU has done is provide people with emergency housing. So it has that reputation. And so those who have heard of it and know how to find it um, are aware that if they don't have anywhere to stay, that's a place they can go and say, can you help me? I need to stay somewhere. So I think for a lot of people, they have all those same ideas about avoiding ties. And they're just going to this group the way they might go to any shelter, to any social service agency for assistance. Um, and so that's one path that people take. Um, there are other paths. So I had a couple people tell me uh, that they saw KWU on the news doing a protest and they were kind of impressed and they thought, what is that group? I want to be part of that. One woman told me that she recognized someone she knew uh, in one of those uh, news coverage events and she thought, hey, uh, I know him and I, I want to find out more about that group. Um, and some people uh, in their neighborhoods would find that their children or grandchildren or even they themselves would be walking along and see a group of KWU members talking to people in the neighborhood, organizing them the way labor organizers do, and often distributing free food. Um, and so there were a couple people who told me stories about that, that 
there was someone giving out bananas and they said, well, who is this person giving out bananas? Let me find out what they're about. I spoke to one woman who, uh, who found the group because she had actually been um, living on the street for just one night. She had to stay on the night for uh, stay on the street for one night with her boyfriend. And um, she knew, well, we can't sleep on the street. This isn't going to work, but they had just been evicted. And she stumbled across a food distribution the very next day um, and just immediately got involved with the group. And ultimately, with their help, um, secured housing permanently. She got a Section 8 voucher um, and then ended up being involved in the group for about 20 years um, up to today, um, still involved. So people have a lot of different paths, but often it's... um, an immediate threat to uh, housing that someone's facing homelessness and they really don't have anywhere else to go. And so they approach the group. Then there's also um, people who will walk into the office off the street because, because the name Kensington welfare rights, they hear that this group might help them navigate the welfare bureaucracy might help them um, get cash assistance. If they feel like they've been having trouble or they've been denied might help them um, secure food stamps, might help them get assistance with utilities, uh, like through um, LIHEAP, the Low Income Heat and Energy Assistance Program. Um, and so there are a lot of different reasons why people might seek out the group. Um, but I think often it really is, as I said, it's a threat to um, some really basic need. That's really great variation you found there. Uh, but what I found interesting, too, is that once they're – in the group, the sense of individualism and the pick yourself up by your bootstraps and the the whole achievement ideology that they had going in doesn't really go away. It simply it stays, and they adjust it. It seems. Yeah, I think that's true. I think I think those are really hard things to overcome. Um, you know, and to be honest, I tell my students all the time. I, I talk about the achievement ideology in my social stratification class. Um, we read uh, Ain't No Making It by Jay McLeod, um, and he talks a lot about the achievement ideology. And we talk about how really most people do believe in it. I think I do. I mean, I think we all do to some extent, right? So the idea that hard work will lead you to your goals. If we didn't believe that, then you know, how do any of us get up in the morning and, and work and try to face another day, right? So we have to have hope and um we may recognize that hard work alone won't be sufficient, but that that's probably necessary. Right. And so um, I think it's hard to let go of those things. And I'm not sure that it would be useful necessarily to let go of them. So I think Caterbury members do hold on to their individualism in a sense, and they hold on to um, the hope that things will be better for their, their lives in the future and that what they're going through is temporary and that they want to try to do what they can to better their situations. Um, so they're in this organization that in many ways is rejecting individualism and it's in a collective, but at the same time, um, they find a way to make that still be coherent with the other ideologies that they can hold on to. And, you know, all human beings are walking contradictions, right? I mean, we all hold conflicting ideas in our heads all the time. So um, there's no reason to believe that any of these people would be any different in that. Um, And so I think uh, people are able to hold on to those things. And the same way that um, even those who avoid social ties in general often make exceptions for one family member or one friend, I think that um, the people who want to avoid social ties in general can make exceptions for KWRU members, and they can say, well, this is different. These are these are my family. So um, I can still think I should avoid people in general, but not these people. Uh, and so there are ways that people find ways to adjust um, how they enact their ideology to fit with their situations. Really interesting. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny that we sometimes have to uh, tell others that uh, the, the poor are just like the rest of us, but... Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. I guess that's something that you're doing in here. So, um, to- I'm certainly trying to. I'm certainly trying to. I mean, I feel that they have um, challenges. The people that I that I studied for this book have challenges that um, that many of us 
could never understand. We can't begin to imagine. Um, but they do certainly have the, the hopes and dreams and needs and desires that everybody else does. Right. Um, and they've also, um, come of age in the same society in the same country as the rest of us. Right. And so in terms of the, the very American ideology of individualism and personal responsibility and the stereotypes about poor people, they have internalized all of that too, because they consume all the same media the rest of us do. And they've been educated in the same educational system as all the rest of us. So um, it makes sense that they would feel and think about the world the same way as everybody else. Yes, exactly. Uh, so one concept that I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about is this idea of reciprocity uh, in social ties and uh, in the KWRU. And you describe both the positive and the negative feelings that people experience from reciprocity. So on the one hand, obviously, it feels really good to help other people who are in need. And obviously, you're, if you give, you're going to get, in, theoretically, in return later down the road. But then you also describe how there's also this fear that these folks have of being taken advantage of or of uh, not being able to help others in return later when they need help. So you found how, how these people, they often don't form these mutually beneficial social networks because of the, the norms of reciprocity and some of these fears that they have. But then you argue that KWRU as an organization really mitigates some of these problems that come up from reciprocity. So I, I was wondering if you can just discuss that, uh, that whole finding there. Sure. And that's actually one of my, that's one of my favorite findings that uh, it was very accidental. I didn't ask any questions about reciprocity. It wasn't on my radar at all. Um, but then it was all over the data. <laughs> um, and it was really fascinating. So, I mean, I think everybody faces this reciprocity, by the way, poor people, middle-class people, wealthy people, right? So um, if a friend drives you to the airport, you automatically do feel like a little sense of obligation that at some point you want to repay the favor in some way, maybe not that, but something else. If they ask you to help them move, you're likely to say yes, right? Cause you feel like they did you this big favor. Um, and sometimes it's hard for people to ask for help. Um, regardless of where they are in their economic uh, position in life, because they, they're they worried that it might be an imposition on another person or that um, how would they be able to repay that or would they be able to repay it? So uh, I think that's something that everybody struggles with. Those norms of reciprocity are really universal. And how we feel about them, I think, are also complicated and contradictory, and that is also universal. So... A lot of the people that I studied avoided social ties in part because they were afraid that they wouldn't be able to reciprocate any help they got. And also because they were afraid that other people wouldn't reciprocate the help they gave. Right. And so both of those, the two sides of reciprocity were things that kept people from developing social ties. Now, what happened in KWRU is that people would come for help. And even though, as I've just described, this organization provided all this help, almost like a social service agency would, at the same time, the organization was very quick to say, we are not a social service organization. We are not here as an agency to provide help to you, right? It is staffed by poor people themselves. It's staffed completely by volunteers. Um, the members are the people who are there at the office helping other people out. The members are the people who are going on food distributions, who are calling the welfare office, who are helping people fill out forms. It's the people themselves who are doing it. There's no paid staff. And so it is different very much different than a social service agency. And it requires the help of the members to work, right? So if nobody was willing to give that help to sit in the office and answer phones and fill out forms and do all of those things, then the organization wouldn't exist, right? So in getting help, the organization was very quick to say, what will you do for us? You have to do some things too. And usually that started with um, come to the office you know, one day a week or two days a week for a couple of hours, help out. So sit here and if someone comes in, you can answer their questions. And usually in the beginning, you wouldn't have the answers, right? So you'd ask somebody else who was there for longer, but you'd learn as you would go. There were people who would be there um, to answer the phones and take messages, things like that. 
um, and compile information. Often they would be running different protests or rallies. And so people might get together to make signs. They would go to help out on food distributions and more uh, experienced longer term members who had secured housing often would let new homeless members stay with them. So that was a way that they gave back. So the organization set it up that there were these reciprocity requirements, which it needed to do or it couldn't have existed. And I argue that in doing that, in giving people assistance, but requiring help from them in turn, it created this cyclical relationship of reciprocity. Uh, which ended up being a real foundation for social ties that could last. So if, if it was instead to model of um, the model most service, social service agencies use and the model of, for example, like a food bank, you go and you receive your food. Usually there's a limit, maybe once a month or something, and you say thank you and you leave. And there's no way you can invest to get more of that help. Right. Um, but instead, Caterbury was set up so that really the more you did give, the more you could get. And so those most dedicated members, the people who were at every protest, every rally, the people who worked in the office all the time, those were the people who, when the organization did secure some housing vouchers from the city, which happened during my research, um, it was up to Caterbury to decide who to distribute them to. And they were distributed to the people who had been the most involved to reward them for for all of their help as a way to kind of pay them back for it. And so in that sense, their investment paid off with this reciprocity. Um, now, as you pointed out, it's, it's not always positive um, in general and in the group, right? So in general, there, there are people, I, I spoke to one woman, Rebecca, who had who had reciprocated a lot and had engaged in this a lot with friends before she found Caterbury with friends and with relatives. And she often felt that it was unequal. She felt very often taken advantage of. Um, uh, several other people spoke to me about that as well, that they would, um, they would have watched their sister's child and their sister came home later than they expected. And, you know, the sister never said, thank you. The sister never did the same for her, that sort of thing. Um, and so they already had felt, that they were on the losing side of that reciprocity equation a lot. And so it made them more wary of doing it in the future. And occasionally it was because um, they felt that they had give, gotten a lot of help and hadn't been able to give it back and they'd felt bad. And so um, reciprocity can be that double-edged sword that it can allow you to build um, some resources, but it can also drain your resources. It can leave you either feeling taken advantage of or feeling guilty because you can't get back. I think in KWU, there's some of the negative too, right? So even though it, it seems to work um, for a lot of people, and most of the people that I talked with really felt like it had worked, I did find some people who um, clearly felt that it, they were on the losing side of the reciprocity equation in KWU too. Um, that it wasn't just outside of the group, but in the group, that it fell short in some places. So um, I talk uh, in particular about Helen, who had been involved in the organization for about five years. It was That was a pretty lasting commitment. Um, and yet at the end, she did feel that she did a lot. She showed up a lot. She went to rallies. She went to the office. And she wasn't sure what she was getting in return. And she felt that it wasn't a good use of her time. And so she felt that reciprocity wasn't working for her in that way. Or the story of Rebecca and Naomi, who, um, because this reciprocity norm is a norm, it's not a written rule, it was never really explicitly clear to them what they were supposed to do. So they felt that they were doing a lot and they weren't really getting that much help. And the organization felt they were giving lots of help to them and not getting much in return, right? And so it, it's, it sort of broke down in that way. Um, but for the most part, it was positive. And why I argue Caterbury U can really serve to mitigate some of the negative effects is that, for example, when um, two people have a reciprocal relationship, but they have a falling out, which happens, right? People have an argument over, um, over anything, you know, who did the dishes that day, or it's an argument over money or whatever. Um, it, people usually part ways if they're not blood relatives, right, or really close friends with a long history together. 
And yet this organization could serve um, to kind of smooth over rifts in terms of directly intervening if people were having a disagreement and trying to help them make up, but also in helping to maybe take somebody out of a situation that wasn't positive and still maintain their connection to the group. So um, one member lived with another, but when they had a falling out, rather than lose that new member, um, they just found somewhere else for her to stay. And so they could maintain her connection to the group and she could still get resources from the group, but they didn't have to worry so much about um, whether it was going to be with that same person anymore. And so I think uh, KWU both serves as a tie itself, but also as this institutional mechanism to strengthen uh, existing ties and as a bridge um, between maybe one person and a new tie if a former tie falls away. Uh, and that is a really uh, unique, uniquely important thing that KWU was able to provide um, because most peer relationships don't have some institutional mechanism to help keep them connected or smooth over, over rifts, right? Um, so that's a really unusual thing that KWU was able to do. And one of the things that I think was the most valuable and what they were able to do. Yeah, let's let's talk about that a little bit because you describe a very specific form of social ties which KWRU is able to produce, and that is this idea of sustainable ties. And that's my favorite word in the subtitle. Um, <laughs> it's uh, obviously such a popular term today in, in many segments of society. We hear it with food. Uh, we hear it with uh, various environmental issues. And you're using it to describe these particular social relationships. So explain a bit what you mean by social ties being sustainable and why it's important that they are in general and, of course, why it's important for these folks who you studied in particular. So part of it is I definitely have to credit um, Matt Desmond, um, who is the author of Evicted, a great book that came out last year. Um, he wrote an article about five years ago for the American Journal of Sociology called Disposable Ties and the Urban Poor. Um, and it's a really fascinating article. And in it, um, he's he's talking about what I talk about as well in the book of the work of Carol Stack from 40 plus years ago um, and the strong kin ties that she found uh, and how that allowed people to survive. But he asks the question, well, what happens when people don't have that um, and they can't just rely on a public safety net? And he, and among those he studied who were facing eviction, people developed what he called disposable ties. So they were these fleeting ties with often just strangers or new acquaintances. Um, and they didn't have um, much strength to them. They were new, very tenuous bonds. And so they broke easily. And he argued that it made them worse off than before. So what I thought was so interesting is that here I found people developing ties with people who weren't family, um, people who were facing similar dire circumstances, not eviction, but facing homelessness in the same sort of way and um, trying to figure out what to do next and meeting new people and building ties with them to get the resources that they needed. And yet they didn't, break easily. They, these new bonds did not fall apart right away. They did not fall apart when people had their first disagreement and they didn't make people worse off than before. So I thought that that was something that was really new and valuable. And um, the same way that we can think about disposability means something you would easily get rid of, um, but also implies that it's something that's not really built to last. Sustainability is something that we think can last and um, is built to last. And it also, to me, the term implies that there's a way that you invest in it to sort of keep it going, right? That it's not just something that does last, but that you find ways to sustain it. Um, and so I think part of why it's so important is that it's, it's unique, but I think it's replicable. I think what KWRU did um, it was not, I don't want to imply that it was an accident, although I don't think it was their main goal as an organization, but I do think they ended up allowing people 
to build some social ties, which they helped to foster and strengthen. So they lasted for the really long term in ways that other um, agencies could probably replicate and that we in general could keep in mind, like what helps people build ties that last, what helps them salvage them when they're going to fall apart. Um, so if we accept that the public safety net um, is eroding and that it can't really provide um, all the needs that people have and the private safety net in terms of um, philanthropy and uh, social service organizations can't fill a gap. And we accept that not everybody has strong family ties to rely upon. Then we know that people will have to turn to others in some way and they will form some sorts of connections with others. So, how can we make those stronger? What what can we learn from what they did um, to help people um, make the most of those ties so that they're positive and not and not negative, so that they add to their lives but they don't detract? So um, sustainability, you know, when I say that it's a lasting, durable tie, some people might wonder, well, how long does it have to last? Like, how do you know it's sustainable? Um, and I don't have a set. Uh, timeline in mind. I didn't come up with a threshold where if it's past this point, it lasts. And if it doesn't, then it doesn't. Um, I think it probably depends on the situation. I think when we think about unrelated strangers who develop a friendship that lasts for five years or 10 years or 20 years, I think we can say that's sustainable. Um, If it lasts for eight months, is it? Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's relative, right? And so it's, uh, it's better than lasting three weeks. Maybe it depends what happens afterwards, right? So if a tie lasts eight months and people are um, better off than before, then maybe that's still good. Um, if a tie lasts for eight months and somehow has wreaked havoc on their lives, then no, that's not good. <laughs> but that's not really what I found. So even those who um, severed their connection to the group in some way um, weren't worse off for the experience of being with KBRU. They still, that was still a time that they looked back on fondly and it was still a time when things were better in their lives than it was um, after. So I think that shows um, that it was important in that way. And I think there's other ways that the social ties matter. It's not just um, how can this provide resources to fill a gap that the the safety net isn't. Um, But I think it's also the emotional piece of it. So, when I know when I have a bad day, I have friends to talk to. I have my husband to talk to. Um, everyone has things that they want to share with others. Everybody needs a pep talk sometimes. Um, and everybody needs some emotional and moral support. And so I think if we're talking about people who've been so focused on prioritizing what they should do as individuals and so wary of building connections with others because they're afraid of stigma and gossip and danger and reciprocity. And yet they find in this group, some people who they can connect with who are like them and who aren't going to judge them, um, who they can talk to about their hopes and their fears and who are going to really get it and support them. I think that's incredibly valuable. So poor isolated people deserve a sense of community just as much as anybody else. And part of what I found um, the most touching, the most heartwarming were the stories that people told me, um, like Colleen talking about her relationship with Paloma, uh, where they had become friends and they just, they got each other. They listened to each other's problems. They didn't judge each other. They talked to each other about being a mom and raising kids and lots of things that didn't have anything to do with their poverty. Um, but just had to do with being human beings who felt a mutual affinity. Um, and I think the fact that people were able to find that in this group um, was just this added bonus that was really beautiful. Oh, definitely. Definitely was. So you, I think a big, big argument in the book is that Kensington Welfare Rights Union and other organizations like it, they, they do not solve poverty. They're not the solution, but they help people to survive it. And as you uh, mentioned before, there are, it's not a perfect organization. There are some people who 
don't get it. Some people who eventually leave it. Uh, but then again, the uh, the perfect should not be the enemy of the good. What can we learn much? What can we learn from your findings in terms of any kind of reforms that could be done uh, to help alleviate some of the uh, conditions that these folks find themselves having to deal with? Uh, that's a great question. And I have to say that's almost, I think, probably my favorite quote. The perf- We can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, I think that's so important. Uh, and, yeah, no organization is perfect. Um, and yet I see so much value in what Kid Radio has to offer. And and I, I continue to see that value as the organization has also changed and morphed over time, um, and it has a slightly different form today. That it still has so much, um, so much good to offer, even if it's not perfect. I think you know one thing that's really valuable that happened that I saw that the group was able to do is you know if people come for help and then they have to give a lot in return, it allowed them to build these ties that lasted, right? Because people can invest in help and then draw on help. So it keeps them connected to the organization. That that cycle is very beneficial. And so one of the things that I think we can learn from that or that or other organizations can try to adopt is that there, there might be ways to ask for small amounts of reciprocity from those um, who get help as clients of social service organizations and that it would really aid them in feeling um, invested and feeling that they weren't getting charity, but they were getting something they were um, going to be able to further invest in. Um, And that does a lot for people's sense of their self-worth, their self-esteem, but also if it keeps them connected to a group where there are other clients doing the same thing, it allows them to actually have that common space where they're meeting up and they can build social ties with each other. Um, And so I think that's something that wouldn't even be that difficult to do. Um, and is a great thing to sort of borrow from this organization, from this organization's model um, that other other groups could do, and that could really help them um, help their clientele for for the longer term, um, and help them not just addressing some instrumental practical needs or the way some organizations help people, um, say for example, prepare for the GED exam or help provide uh, employment training, um, those sorts of human capital investments, but also could actually help with social capital investments by giving people opportunities to build social ties with other people. Uh, I think that that is incredibly valuable. Uh, and I, I hope um, that there, there's a way for other organizations to to see this and try to adopt it and implement it in their own, um, in their own policies and their own ways that they, um, they, uh, serve the public. I think that there are ways that they can use these sorts of things that Caterbury you did, uh, and better serve the people that they're trying to serve. Right, right, right. So as a, as a qualitative study, you really got to know these people really, really well, and you have, really, really great, great quotes, and they really emerge as three-dimensional people. And I was wondering if you can just talk a bit about, in terms of your methods, what some of your relationships were like with these folks and how uh, you were able to really get this much access to them so that they were able to share so much really personal, intimate uh, details and expose themselves so much uh, to you. Uh, for you to be able to uh, work on this book. Well, thank you so much, first of all, because that's such a, it's a great, um, great way to have my research thought of. Um, I will say that it, it, it doesn't come easy uh, to get intimate information from people, right? So you can't knock on someone's door and say, hi, I want to interview you. Let me ask you all these personal questions and have them open up, right? Um, at the same time, people who often feel, um, invisible or disenfranchised are often really um, welcoming, even anxious, eager to talk to researchers who want to hear what they have to say, um, because often people feel that nobody had listened to them before, right? Um, so, but before I interviewed anyone, I spent time with them. So for the KWRU folks, uh, I was at a protest early on uh, in the research. I would go to the office and hang out. 
I um, went on some errands with one member who introduced me to a lot of other people. So I got to know people a little bit just um, by face and name. They kind of knew who I was before I did any interviews. And then the interviews were, were slow. It was, you know, one person at a time. And so it might be uh, a few months would go by and someone knew I had interviewed a few people. And so then they were more willing to talk to me because I was around and others had talked to me as well. Um, and each of the interviews was very long, several hours, uh, usually in multiple visits. I think my longest interview was seven hours. Um, and I think we, we did it in three separate sessions. Um, some interviews were shorter. Obviously, some people don't talk as much as others. But I asked very open-ended questions and let people talk. I also asked people about a lot of other things before asking really sensitive questions. So I think there might be um, an inclination that if you're studying poor people, you want to ask them what it's like to be poor and ask them about all of their struggles. Uh, and that's important, but they're people, right? They're full people. So I also wanted to ask them to tell me what the best thing in their lives was. I asked them to tell me uh, what a typical day in their lives was like. I asked them to tell me um, their life story as much as they felt like it, right? So some of them started with childhood and told me wonderful, beautiful stories of great childhoods. And some of them told me some pretty horrific stories too. Some of them didn't want to go back to their childhood and started uh, with more current things. Some people talked a lot more about work than other people or about um or hobbies. So people had a lot of different things to share and I let them share all of those things. I wanted to hear the good things as well as, as their struggles. Um, I think part of establishing rapport and trust is also showing that I trust them. So if people ask me questions about myself, I an answered them honestly and openly and freely. Uh, so if people ask me, um, if I was married or if I had a boyfriend or if I had children, I didn't change the subject. <laughs> I answered their questions. Um, they asked me what the research was for. And I explained at the time I was working towards my PhD and this was for my dissertation um, so that I could get my degree. I, I was very open about everything. Um, and I think because people could see that I was an open book and I could trust them, um, they felt a little bit easier trusting me. But the big piece is really that I think so often people feel invisible. And I had a few people tell me, please write this book. Please make sure people read it because we don't want to be invisible. Um, they know that most people would prefer not to think about poor people and think about homeless people. Um, but they want to make sure that everybody knows that they're there and they're just like the rest of us. And um, I felt like that was something that I could give them to try to make them less invisible. I couldn't always do it exactly in the way they wanted. I had uh, a couple people want me to use their real names uh, and I couldn't use their real names because uh, my institutional review board wouldn't have allowed it, but also because people were interconnected. And so uh, if I revealed who someone was, it might allow people to figure out who another person was. Um, and so that wouldn't have been fair. Um, I would say too, for the people who were not in KWRU, my rapport building process was a little bit different. I did get to know them a little bit before I interviewed them too, but not as much. There wasn't as much opportunity to just sort of hang out um, and, and do things with people. Uh, but I did get a chance to introduce myself to people and get them um, to sort of see who I was and what I was about a little bit before we did a first interview. And for a lot of them, it also was more than one interview. And by the second interview where I asked some maybe more intimate questions, they already felt that they had gotten to know me uh, a bit to be able to open up. Um, but I will say, you know, not everybody opens up as much as everybody else. Um, and so I'm sure there's some people who just didn't share that much with me. But the fact that some people told me about um, engaging in really stigmatized activities in the past, um, for example, legal things, or told me about um, uh, weaknesses in their own 
parenting that they saw or um, ways that they felt like they had been a bad friend. I mean, they shared things that wouldn't have made them look that good. And they were willing to tell me that. And so I think that did give me the confidence that uh, people felt comfortable enough to be open and honest with me. Oh, great. Thank you for that response, John. So we are, uh, we've already taken up a lot of your time already. So I would just want to ask you one more question. And that is, what are you working on today? And does it relate in any way to what you've uh, done for this book? Thank you for that question. Um, it does relate, but maybe not as obviously as some might think. So um, my current research is on student loan debt. And um, the way that I see them as connected is uh, it's part of a larger conversation about inequality and those who are struggling um, and those who are trying to get to reach their version of the American dream, um, focusing on their personal responsibility and individualism and what they need to do to get there uh, and the ways in which they require support from others to do so uh, and what that looks like. So uh, the research uh, is collaborative with a colleague of mine at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, Arielle Cooperberg, and uh, it's mixed methods. So I'm doing the qualitative portion and she's doing a quantitative portion. So we're using some um, existing survey data and we're collecting our own survey data. And we've also been doing some qualitative in-depth interviews. So I interviewed uh, a number of graduating seniors from both campuses last year, and we're following up with them again this year. And we currently have a grant under review. Hopefully, if we get it, we'll be able to follow up with these same students um, through 2020, uh, including adding interviews with uh, key family members um, or spouses, partners in their lives, people who they're living with and um, sharing some of these burdens and difficulties with. So uh, I'm excited about that. It's been, it's been uh, really fun so far, uh, but it's definitely a kind of a different population than what I studied before. I do think it's part of a larger conversation about stratification in the United States though. So it is related in that way. Yeah, I certainly, I see that connection. It sounds like a really great project and looking forward to seeing some publications from it. And hopefully if uh, you and your co-author write another book, we can have you back on the show. In a, oh, in thanks. A, We'd love uh, it. <laughs> well, the plan to write another book. Yeah. Great. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. I uh, really enjoyed it. I'm sure our listeners are going to love it and wish you the best of luck. Take care. Thanks so much, Richard. You too.